0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey there, Cynical
1: listeners. Kaiser here. Since May, when SupChina began hosting our podcast, we've been telling you about the SupChina app and newsletter. If you're at all interested in China, these are tremendously useful tools for you. In just a few minutes, you'll be brought up to date on all the important China news from the last 24 hours, complete with links to original stories in the global and Chinese press. So go and download the app and subscribe to the newsletter. The app is on the Apple App Store and on Google Play, and you can sign up for the daily newsletter at subchina.com. Let us know what you think, and on with the show. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, we weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and at the website subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We're coming to you today from Oakland, California. I'm Kaiser Guo, joined as usual by Jeremy Goldcorn, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse. How are you, Jeremy?
0: <laughs> We're doing very well, as always, Kaiser.
1: What is your specialty? I mean, you're not like... Death and destruction. (laughs) You kind of cover all the things that the other horsemen don't. So today, actually, we have a a very different guest. Somebody who's spent time actually behind bars, both in Beijing at the number one detention center and in New Jersey here in the U.S., in the Northern State Prison in North New Jersey, uh, both for nonviolent cannabis-related offenses. Michael Manning previously wrote a blog in China about his experiences in Xinjiang called opposite end of China. It's still online actually at china.notspecial.org. And uh, some of you, some of our listeners, anyway, we may remember that blog from back in period from about 2005 through 2007 before Michael actually moved to Beijing. Michael has very generously agreed to chat with us about his experiences. Nothing off limits. So Jeremy, you know Michael, may you guys go back a ways.
0: Yeah, we, we met, I mean, we knew each other online when Dunway was a big part of the blogging scene. And, you know, Michael was the only English language blogger uh, writing uh, a blog from the point of view of someone living in Xinjiang, which was really interesting. And, you know, that that blogging scene was small enough that I guess there were like maybe 20 blogs that were consistently written <laughs> about right. China in English, and we pretty much all knew each other. So I guess that's how we met online. And then you moved to Beijing, right, Michael? Yeah, and more importantly for me, I, I didn't have any friends when I moved to Beijing, so I I hit up all of
2: my blog contacts and uh, ah. became friends with a number of them, you. Uh, all right.
0: Among them. Yeah. So, I mean, the blog is worth checking out, but what we're going to talk about today is, you know, some of the interesting experiences you had uh, a bit later. So, why don't you tell us how you ended up in Beijing number one detention center?
2: All right. So, I had lived in Xinjiang from 2005 to 2007. And uh, while I was there, I had become friends with a lot of Uyghurs. I was also a big fan of smoking hash, um, cannabis. Uh, I mean, that's my career now, and it had been my career, part of my career in the United States before that. What do you mean by it's your career now? I mean, you- uh, well, I work in the cannabis industry here in the United States. Uh, I currently work at Magnolia Wellness, a dispensary, a cannabis dispensary here in Oakland, California. But I've, uh, also, uh, worked at High Times in the past simultaneously while I was working at NBC News. I kind of, Lived in both worlds uh, uh, a lot of my life, but now I'm firmly on the cannabis side, now that I'm free and living here in California. But at that time, when I moved to Beijing in 2008, I didn't know a lot of people. I was smoking a lot of hash from my Uyghur friends in Xinjiang, and I brought a bunch with me. I started uh, sharing it with my newfound friends. Everybody told me I had the best hash around, much better I don't know what's going on now in Beijing, but at that time, it was kind of Nigerians running things in San Lietun, selling this shoe polish, incense, opium crap that everybody hated. Everybody loved my hash in Beijing. Um, I made a lot of new friends, and I started importing hash from Korla, where I lived uh, in Xinjiang, to Beijing and uh, selling it on the side while I was working at CCTV.
1: So how were you actually importing it?
2: Well, it was, I mean, it was in the country already, but it was in Xinjiang, in Korla, in, right, in right. where I had lived for three years. And I had a lot of friends there. I would fly across the country. I would uh, talk to my friends and, you know, get a kilo, two kilos. I would buy one of those home stereo systems that are very cheap in China, uh, you know, with a subwoofer and two side speakers. I'd rip out the guts of the subwoofer, stuff the hash inside. I would send it to myself via China Mail and, fly back to Beijing and receive it. And And that was that. That was that. So how did you end up getting caught then? Um, I mean, I'd done it a bunch of times and I guess getting comfortable is always when people get caught. I mean, both times I've been caught in the United States and in China, uh, it's when I got comfortable, but I just believe that I don't know a hundred percent because in China, you don't you have never to do. Yeah, you never <laughs> do. I mean, they don't have in, in the US you get discovery, you kind of get the evidence from the police what they have against you. In China they don't tell you anything. Right. Um so, but what I believe is that it was just profiled as a large package from Xinjiang to Beijing and kind of, you know, subject to extra security, maybe an x-ray. And if it was x-rayed, then they would see two large, you know, bricks of something stuffed inside the subwoofer that didn't belong there. Right. And so i assume
1: assuming you understood that was illegal, but did you know what the sorts of penalties were that you might face if you were caught?
2: I definitely did not. I definitely knew it was illegal and I definitely did not know what the penalties were. In fact, after I got arrested and thrown into Beijing number one detention center, It took at least a month before my lawyer was even able to tell me what type of time I was facing. The the big question was what amount triggered sort of an automatic conviction. They don't have in China what we have in the United States usually, which is possession with intent to distribute. They have possession for personal use and they have distribution or dealing drugs. And it turned out that the limit was 2,000 grams or two kilos for hash which just so happened to be the exact amount that I had purchased in Xinjiang and sent to myself in Beijing.
0: So if they leaned on the scale, then you were guilty of a more serious offense. And if they didn't, then you exactly just under the limit.
2: I was pretty certain that I was going to be convicted. Well, first of all, because China has, you know, 99.99% conviction rate or something along those lines. The whole time that I was in the detention center, I never saw one person released uh you know sort of to freedom like oh we made a mistake you know sorry you're you know you're innocent you're going everybody who i knew the whole time was convicted and let's nobody go, let's ever go let.
0: back a step michael so what happened how how exactly were you caught
2: okay so i was working at cctv nine at the time and i was working overnight shifts uh this particular week and I came home from the shift in the morning. I was wondering where my package was. I knew it was supposed to be there the day before, but I figured it would get there the next day. I went to sleep at about 8 in the morning and at about 10 in the morning, uh, I got a call from China Post saying I had a package they wanted to deliver, just making sure I was home, that sort of thing, which I found a bit odd because that's not the usual procedure. But I have actually received calls from China Post in the past. I then uh, went back to sleep for a little while and – there was a knock at my door about a half an hour later. And when I got up, I, I was groggy. It was overnight. I mean, I did think it was odd that I lived in a tall building with security and everything like that. I did think it was a little odd that they hadn't buzzed up, but people always let people in the door and things like that. So it's you, know, you can shrug off inconsistencies. You're always worried. If you're, if you're a drug dealer, you're always worried and you're always paranoid. So you learn to ignore things that you think are wrong because usually they're not wrong. So this delivery guy, these delivery guy, it was actually two delivery guys came up to the door. They gave me the package. They had me sign the paperwork. They slid the package inside the door, just inside the door frame, actually, kind of so you couldn't slam the door shut, right. I figure. I went to take the package out of the doorframe, kind of slide it in after I'd given them the paperwork. And I turned to my right to rotate the package you know, out of the doorway. And as I rotated back to the door to close it, I saw just a whole bunch of guys running towards me. Uniformed or? Uh, uh, no, plainclothes police. And I knew what was, I mean, I knew what was going on. But seriously, it was it was like the worst, it was the worst feeling I've ever had in my life. I can imagine. I mean, it was just the, the bottom of your stomach dropping out all the way, like kind of what I imagine it's like when you're in a lion's jaws and you give up hope on life or something like that. You're kind of just, it just all drains right out of you.
1: Previous to this, you'd had no real run-ins with law enforcement either here in in the States or in China?
2: I had spent a night in jail in New York in 2000. Uh, I had been in a marijuana protest that Rudy Giuliani, who was mayor at the time, uh, previous in previous years, nobody had gotten arrested and that year he decided to arrest pretty much everybody who they saw smoking. So I think the previous year, 15 people had been arrested. The year I got arrested, there was 312 people arrested, but it was uh, expunged from my record later.
0: Okay. So the guys arrive at your door and then what
2: happens? So they run on through, you know, they kind of just sit me down on the ground and I, I I have this memory, uh, you know, the, the cleaning lady had been there the day before. My fake wood floors were completely like a mirror, and these guys all ran in with their dusty shoes and the dusty footprints all over the place. And uh, they were followed by a woman with a camera, and they just start tossing the whole place. They're just looking around everywhere, and they're videotaping me, and they're asking me, like, you know why we're here? You know why we're here? And I'm like thinking, I worked at CCTV at the time and I'm thinking like, oh my god, this is going to be on CCTV tonight, <laughs> like footage of some American uh caught with a large quantity of drugs. And they just asked me, you know, if I knew why they were there. And I said, I mean, I probably should have said nothing cuz that's always the best idea when you're dealing with the police in any case, but uh I was like, "Yes, I know, it's the drugs, it's the drugs, whatever." It didn't matter. I knew I was in China. It didn't matter like, what you, you know, what you right. say. I don't think. Uh, so they opened they don't up read the you Miranda rights here. Right? Exactly. <laughs> they didn't need me to admit it. They weren't going to leave if I didn't. If and I didn't they, did they inform you that you were under arrest at that point? I don't remember anything like that. I mean, I was. I just was distraught. Right. Uh, I can imagine. I was just yeah. distraught, and I had been sleeping too. Uh, it was you know in the morning after working all night. So they basically looked around my place for a while. They collected everything. They found all the hash, and I had. I mean, I had these two kilos of hash uh, in the package, but there were also bits and containers all over the house, and there were, um, you know, pipes, things like that, whatever. They, they found it all, and they also took my laptop and things like that and my phone and told me to get some clothes on and brought me downstairs, put me in a car, and took me to the local narcotics task force kind of had r Right. Yeah, it was. I guess my my I, I've forgotten a lot about Beijing, but whatever. Like Beijing, it was something like Beijing Northeast Drug Task Force, like headquarters. It was a small little. It was a small police station, but it was there. The drug task force. Uh, it was their building alone, and it just looked like a small, tiny police station. And I remember I'd been in there for maybe half an hour. I really had to go to the bathroom. I, whenever I'm very nervous or in a lot of trouble or something like that i have to pee all the time and uh they took me to go to the bathroom and we're walking in the hallway and i see this huge pile of of hash like sitting in this hallway and i'm like (laughs) oh my god they got another guy with a huge pile of hash you know and they were like oh no that's your hash like we opened it up like that's all your hash poured out you know onto this table here they just kind of asked me a few questions i mean i just i if you're smart when you when you when you get with police when police start asking you a lot of questions i mean you kind of play dumb i mean what else can you do you know you're guilty you know anything you say can and will be used against you uh in a court of law so i mean i the best thing about being interrogated by chinese people as an american who understands a decent amount of chinese at the time at least is that you can really play dumb convincingly. It, 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 you can use translators against them. You can say like, sorry, I didn't understand the question. Do you mean this? Do you mean that? And all the time you're thinking of, you know, the good answer. Right away, they want to know how much it is, who you're selling to, like what you're doing with it, who you're hanging out with. They're trying to establish your network of friends and get enough for you to be guilty. But the thing that works against the investigation, it seemed to me, at least in China, is that each stage is separate. I was I mean first I was at this um, small police station and from what I can tell everything that they got me to confess is only used to be able to send me to the detention center and at the detention center I met my interrogating officer who would be my interrogating officer throughout my entire case when they brought me there late at night so so I'd been in the I had been so I'd been arrested in the morning and I stayed in the uh, the little substation for the narcotics task force all day. Then they brought me to this hospital that's, uh, right on the corner of the highway to Bottling Great Wall. Uh-huh. I think terrible, terrible hospital where people come in from the countryside to try to get, you know, treatment for their terrible cancers and ailments. Like this ground floor where we drove in, just sick people lying everywhere. They want to test you to see if you have various diseases and AIDS, which I, one of the things that we ended up talking about while I was in detention a lot was the rumor is, and I, I never got to confirm if it was true or not, but the rumor is that if you're a foreigner arrested in China and you test positive for HIV, and I mean, I'm sure that it's not, uh, the crime isn't multiple murder that they'll send you home that they just don't want to deal with you. So, uh, you were just hoping. <laughs> I was. I know. I, it just. It's just something that you know. Guys talk about uh, when they're locked up. Like, oh man, if you could <laughs> if only have. Oh, yeah, I a, had AIDS. <laughs> if, yeah. If only you had some, you know, something you could inject into your blood to get a little positive test, you know, at that moment and could send you home. God.
0: So then they took you to the hospital, and then, so then they took me I to the hospital.
2: You. They did blood tests, and then they took me to the detention center around ten, eleven at night. Uh, when we got there, uh, we went to some building outside the jail where it was kind of an administrative building. It took me up to the top floor into a big conference room. And I met my interrogating officer who would remain my interrogating officer throughout my entire time there. Plus some interns or something that he was, uh, teaching how to be police. Oh, okay. So they were sort of watching. His <laughs> they guy. were like, no, yeah, he was t- he was writing down my interrogation, and then there were kind of two or three guys who looked like they were about sixteen years old, uh, also trying to write it down perfectly. And he was kind of correcting them and making them rewrite it. And it took hours and hours and hours.
0: So that night, you you arrive there late at night, and the interrogation starts. It starts right away. then. It starts right then. They get down your
2: story. Then like where you know where you're coming from, where you're selling to, and are you handcuffed at this point? Are you in any kind of restraint or? I I was handcuffed. Uh, I was handcuffed going there in the police car for sure. I don't remember being handcuffed in the in the uh, conference room. I probably was. It was it was uh, it was pretty strange actually because, I mean, I could see the jail next to it, but we went into this uh, ancillary building that was looked like a typical. Third-rate Chinese like office building with you know baroque furniture and you know big wood <laughs> tables and stuff like that, and we went up to the nice conference room where I'm sure the people in charge of the jail receive local leaders and things like that, and we did this whole thing. They offered me water, and I I got I, I got through my first confession or whatever. I got through my first interrogation. I got my story down for the first time. So when they finished interrogating me in this office building, they actually led me outside. And one of the features of Beijing number one detention center is that it has these huge doors, like the kind of doors that you imagine on the outside of, of a real prison, like Shawshank Redemption or something like that, these 40 foot steel doors. And they actually make you stand on a line, put your, carry your possessions, put it down on the line, stand on this line while they go in through like a regular people's entrance. And then they open these doors for you to walk into. They for closed, the dramatic effect. For the dramatic effect. I mean, it is a very dramatic effect, especially at, like midnight on your your first uh, day of incarceration in China. At and this point,
1: they had not given you an opportunity to call the embassy, to call a lawyer, oh, no, no, to, no, 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 nothing. nothing like that. Did nothing you ask like for that. this? Or did you? No, ask for
2: that? I didn't ask for it, uh, but. I I really was actually it's funny the I was most worried about my job that first uh, morning I was kind of like oh my god I gotta
0: your call. job at China Central <laughs> at, at Television, television. <laughs> yeah I was like
2: oh man I got to call them and tell them I'm not going to be there like I just I I just I don't know why I was worried about that but uh, that's who I was thinking about calling I was like oh man I should really call
0: work. not call mom call CCTV yeah. um wow. but
2: they let me inside and uh, led me to a room where. I had to take off all of my clothes and they they locked it in a bag and they gave me a uniform to wear. It was just mid-March, so it was still cold, so we got uh we still were wearing padded uniforms. Uh-huh. They have seasonal uniforms in uh in, in Chinese jails uh kind of for fall for winter and spring uh they have a padded uniform and then for uh the fall, fall and spring they have a kind of a short sleeve shirt and a regular pants and then in the uh summer they give you just a vest to wear because everyone just sits around in their boxers.
1: Okay. (laughs) So is the facility heated?
2: No, there's no heat. There's no air conditioning. And if you're familiar with Beijing, you know, it's like not comfortable either time in winter or the summer. Right. There's about two weeks of the year. when (laughs) Exactly. So they lead me up to this, to this room and it's gotta be one in the morning and they open the door to the cell and all the lights are on. And so I'm confused because I'm thinking, like, why are all the lights on? Like, why is everybody up this late at night? I go in there, and I'm also carrying uh, – I forgot to say they gave me also two blankets. That's what you get, uh, two uh-huh. blankets in a uniform. And I'm carrying these two blankets. I go in. The number one wakes up. He kind of says, like, oh, you're new here. What you do? He, he uh, moves a couple guys over who are on the floor and gives me the spot on the floor, concrete floor right next to the bathroom. And – I lay that blanket on the ground. I lay a blanket on top of me, and I try to go to sleep. And I'm just like cold and crying, and and lying on the floor next to the bathroom. And the lights are on, and I'm like, what "When the you say bathroom, you mean
0: like a toilet?" Like, oh a, no, sorry. So, so uh,
2: people who are familiar with some Chinese soap operas and things like that, when the people get when the people go to jail, it is pretty accurate description. Uh, it, when you see all these guys sitting, kind of on a, on a bench next to each other, and uh, the room is about forty feet long and maybe twenty feet wide. Uh, there was anywhere between twelve and fifteen guys in there at a time, oh lord, half Chinese half foreigners and one section one whole wall pretty much was divided off with glass, and behind that was a faucet up high for showering, a squat toilet and a like a hand faucet for washing clothes or washing your hands, but it was just glass, so I mean it was a bathroom, you could shower and stuff in there, but uh, you know, you saw everybody shower, you saw everybody take a shit, you saw everybody do everything all the time, so you are you get very intimate and very close to the people you're in that room with. I mean, you're with them all the time. Every you said it was day. about half foreigners. Why such a high proportion of foreigners? Was this unusual for this detention center? Or well, so they have a uh, Beijing number one detention center is. The place where they have, uh, where they send kind of the biggest uh, criminal cases in, in Beijing, you know. Down in the other wings, there's murderers and the rapists and the cannibals and all that sort of stuff. This wing that they put all foreigners in is for Chinese white collar criminals. It's all uh, corrupt businessmen, you know, tax evasion people selling the same apartment to hundreds of people, all that kind of stuff. But the biggest ones, there was somebody from the. Beijing uh, Water Department, who was, you know, accused of stealing millions of dollars of water, that sort of thing. Um, there were there were some sort of celebs in there as well, weren't there? I mean. Oh, we also had. Um, I mean, down the hallway from me uh, was at one time the richest man in China, the CEO of Guome. Huang Guangyu. And in my cell, uh, his CFO Joe Yafe was uh, was was there, and he actually became our number three. We only had a number one and a number two in the room. Before he arrived But You've you've, you've mentioned that already What does that mean? I mean So there's a
1: very Hierarchical Pecking order there
2: Yeah There's a In every In every cell or room Whatever you want to call it There is uh, There'll be one of the Chinese guys it's always Chinese guys. There, there's a number one and a number two, but the number one is always going to be a Chinese guy who speaks a little bit of English because that's what they value in this wing because they send all the foreigners there and somebody who gets along with the guard because he acts as the. I mean, if he tells you what to do and you don't do it, like the guard will back him up.
0: When and sorry, he comes. These, these people are they're appointed by the prison, by, by the jail, excuse me, to. Well, they're, to, no, they're to the, the guards. Well, the, the, each room has kind of a head guard. You know, a guard
2: who's in charge of that room and responsible for that room. And he appoints who's number one and number two. And then this gourmet CFO, somehow he became number three, even though we, we didn't have number three until he came <laughs> around. But uh, he he, he, he got position, lots yeah. of fluffy blankets and, and delicious food to eat. And the stuff guards like that. were
0: hoping for a bonus after he got <laughs> out. No, I the mean, hour. I think
2: that I'm pretty sure that. You know, several people, their wives or family members, had relationships with the guards. In terms of, I don't know what, but good enough that they could bring them, you know, extra little gifts and things that they might deliver to their husband.
1: So, what what point were you finally able to make contact with the outside world, with the embassy, or with with so my your family?
2: My third or fourth. It was my third day. I'm pretty sure the embassy, a representative from the embassy, came to visit me. One of the um, consular officers, yeah, consular officers, and basically. They lay it down for you and uh, because I'm sure that every person who's locked up in a a foreign prison or jail uh, hopes that when their powerful first world embassy comes to talk to them that they're going to say, like, we're doing everything we can to get you out. You know, we don't want you here. But that's not what they say. They really say we're basically here to see that you're being treated fairly uh in accordance with chinese law and to communicate with your family i mean that's pretty much it if you're being tortured or anything you can let us know you know we'll help you get packages or get some money from your family if if you need money for canteen that sort of thing uh commissary but beyond that they're they it's not they're not there to save you they're just there to you know give you a little lifeline to the world which is really important though because there is uh i mean i had i did uh end up getting a private lawyer my family did find a private lawyer for me but most of the foreigners who are locked up in china don't have private lawyers they get chinese public defenders which inevitably leads to convictions and they have no way to communicate at all with their family or friends some people's embassies don't come uh, to see them and for me, that was the way to communicate with my family. There's no, unlike the United States, when you're in jail or prison, there's no phone calls, there are no letters, there are no visits from family members. So you, you weren't given pen and paper? and No, you, you can't write a letter. To. You can't send out a letter at all. I mean, you're totally cut off from the world when you're in jail in China. In prison, in China, after you've been convicted and they send you to prison, I believe then you can start to communicate with your family in some ways.
1: And we'll get to why you weren't actually sent to prison in a little bit. But first, how, how did you adjust to that first week there? what was it like what was your day uh, it routine? was extremely
2: difficult i mean i don't think i don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that that was probably the most difficult week of my life in terms of just just the raw emotions just you know crying all the time like just uh, just the feeling of utter despair you know of being locked up abroad of, of having done the stupidest thing in your life and having all of the punishment uh, waiting ahead of you and did you
1: did you feel like this was it? I mean, you were you were pretty sure that you were going to go do hard time actually or? I
2: was pretty sure. So, I mean, if the the first number they threw at me when they were kind of really busting my chops and pushing hard was that it was 15 to life. That was that, you know, that was what the interrogator said to me. And it also turned out when I found out eventually that 2000 grams was the limit between kind of personal possession and being a drug dealer in China. I thought I was really screwed because when I had bought the hash in Xinjiang, the guy who had sold it to me had told me that each kilo had an extra 50 grams so that I was getting 2,100 grams, like to make <laughs> sure that it wasn't short. And so I was thinking, like, fuck, uh, I'm, you know, I'm really fucked. <laughs> um, I'm sitting there thinking, man, I have, I know I've got 2,100 grams in that package, and I know I must have some more hash in my house, like, you know, in my dresser drawer, in my pocket. Lost in a little container. So I did believe that I was going to get convicted. And and the other thing, too, is that when you're there is that there is nobody else who is being let free. Everyone else is being convicted around you. Uh, so there you don't there's no hope comes from you know people around you who are like oh maybe you'll be lucky and end up like me there's nobody like that uh-huh. everybody is is getting screwed wow
1: and so who are some of the other people in the salt because you had joy but uh, what about these foreigners you said so maybe what 12 to 15 people so 6 7 foreigners so yourself excluded
2: there were mostly africans there were a couple guys from uganda there was someone from zimbabwe uh, liberia then there was a guy from Iran, and there after I was there a couple of months uh, another American actually ended up coming into my cell but they the Africans were there mostly for smuggling heroin, and the guy from Zimbabwe was there for smuggling I think a hundred kilos of ivory wow. and I mean, most of the Africans are were, were found at the airport by X-ray with with heroin in their stomach, uh, and they sw- I mean, I can't believe these guys swallow between one and one and a half kilos of heroin in hundreds of balloons, uh, and, and then go sit on an airplane to make a little money. So, uh, I actually learned when I was there, like how I guess a lot of drugs come into China. Uh, Even though the drugs are made in, uh, you know, there's a lot of heroin made in Pakistan, Afghanistan, right on China's border. That border is very tightly controlled and it's not easy to get a lot of stuff over it. But actually, Pakistani businessmen. This is what the this is what the guys from Uganda who were actually doing it told me is that Pakistani businessmen will figure out how to export the heroin from Pakistan to or Turkey. Afghanistan to Africa uh, okay. because it's very easy to get anything into Africa, and then they'll pay Africans to smuggle it all around the world because Africans are the cheapest people they can find to pay to smuggle stuff all around the world so terribly sad yeah it definitely and these guys i mean if you think i was sad and crying in 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 uh in a beijing jail i mean i had lived in china for more than 4 years at the time i spoke chinese i you know i could make jokes with people i i i was familiar with winter you know i've lived through winter in both in the united states and in china these guys from africa they show up they get off the plane they're not in china 5 minutes and they're in jail and then they're like live through Twenty Beijing winters or something like that. They've never even seen snow. They've never seen ice or something like that. Wow. These guys are and really. They, they sad. have really no hope they, of anybody helping them. They have no hope of anybody helping them. They don't speak any Chinese. The I mean, even the food that I could get some pleasure from from being used to living in China and some kind of snacks I could get with my commissary money or something like that. Some uh, you know, spicy tofu on a stick or something like that. I mean, it's not going to provide much. Consolation to a guy from Zimbabwe.
0: Michael, can you tell us what a typical day was like in Beijing Number One Detention Center?
2: Sure. Uh, well, you would wake up at six thirty in the morning with a delightful song. I can't remember the exact tune right now, but you know it's something similar to what you might hear if you live next to a middle school in China, something along those lines. You wake up. We clean up the room. We put away all our beds, so we sleep on the floor. Every every single inch of Floor space is covered by a person at night, so everyone has to fold up their bedding, pile up the bedding against the walls, kind of get ready for breakfast to show up, and we have breakfast, which was for foreigners. They some for some reason there was manteau at every meal, but for foreigners, Manteau for, is steamed bread, right? Exactly, um, with exact with no flavor. Like looks like something delicious, but filled with exactly the same stuff that's on the outside, just flavorless flour steamed, but They, for some reason, gave us foreigners a loaf of bread in a little bag every morning that came from one of these factories that's like making like European bread (laughs) bimbo, yeah, something something like that. It was almost (laughs) kind of really bad, kind of Wonderloaf, like Wonderloaf type of thing. And they also had every other morning, you got a hard boiled egg and you got a little bit of this really watered down milk powder that they also gave for foreigners. For some reason, they made some accommodations for foreigners Well, in this we place. need milk and bread, right? Like, we yeah. need milk and bread. Exactly. So, uh, they gave us... Everyone got the hard-boiled egg, though. Only No, there was only They're enough really hard-boiled egg. eggs uh, for half the people. So, on one day, the foreigners ate hard-boiled eggs, and on the next day, Chinese people ate the hard-boiled eggs. That's <laughs> how so we did it. Yeah. And that was breakfast. After breakfast, we would just go sit on the board. I mean, that's what we call the, the, I don't know what actually we call it. So describe what the board is. Okay. So so the room is basically, so just imagine a long room and two thirds of the floor is raised maybe two feet off the ground. So you can sit on the edge of it like a bench and you can lie on it. Kind of, it's probably about, six feet long. So you can lie on it uh, sort of like a platform at night. But there are too many people in the room just to lie up on that. That's wood. There's a cement floor. So additionally, a lot of people end up sleeping on the cement floor. And I noticed, I mean, you know, I, I know there's much debate over whether Chinese people are racist or not, but I did notice for sure that the Africans were sleeping on the floor.
0: So you've had your breakfast.
2: Okay. So we've had breakfast. I mean, basically the main activity in a Chinese jail is sitting on like a bench with no back, basically, sitting on the edge of this board. Uh, You sit there, and you have to sit up. You can't slouch. You can't lean on your knees. You can't fall asleep. There are a whole bunch of things you can't do. You can't lie down on your back. It's not like people think of at least jail in the United States, where people think of guys kind of lying on their bunk all day, sleeping, listening to music, or reading a book or something like that. You have to sit there all day. There was a little reading material in the room, but mostly... You just have to do nothing and stare at the wall all day. You can't walk around. You can't play games. You can't do push-ups. You can't... No, you can't do push-ups and exercise like that. Um, Only one person at a time can get up to go to the bathroom or... You can't even cross your legs. You can't cross your legs. Exactly. All that kind of stuff. I mean... Depending on who's watching at the time, uh, you know. And is there there somebody watching all the time? Yeah. I mean, there are guards walking through the hallways, but there are also video cameras on the wall. And I actually can never figure out the whole time I was there where exactly the video camera was, even though I suspected where it was. So Uh, so what if you cross your legs or what if you lean back or what if you, you know, nod um, off? Basically, if somebody saw it who was watching from the kind of control center uh, down the hallway, they would push a button and yell at you from a speaker on the wall, kind of like, (laughs) hey, Like, uncross your legs, or, hey,
0: sit up, hey, no sleeping. And do they call you by name or number? They call you by
2: name if they know you, but usually, Uh. I mean, if if it's your guard, but the other guards won't know your name. What do they call you? When I was teaching English in China, a lot of the students had crazy names like Butterfly, Michael Jordan, things like that. I had a Chinese name at first that I didn't really like. Uh, When I chose my own Chinese name, I chose Jinggu Bang from uh, Journey to the West, just because I just liked it, and I lived in Xinjiang at the time, and... Uh, I was born in the year of the monkey, and I don't know. And, and if people Chinese always,
0: people can be Butterfly or exactly. Michael Jordan. Or Excalibur. I mean, I figured it was the same thing
2: as being named Excalibur. Right, you, you can know? be the this expanding stick that the monkey king keeps in his ear. Exactly. Right, why not? Uh, so, and, and, and also, it was good for a laugh every single time I told Chinese people my <laughs> name. Every Chinese person knows that story. Uh, I mean, it's like... The Bugs Bunny or Sleeping Beauty or something of uh, uh, you know of sure. China, um, so <laughs> so that's, that's what they they would call you. They'd say, "Hey, Jinggu bong." <laughs> so they'd say something like, Jinggu bong, do this, do that." But so we basically sit there between breakfast and lunch, doing nothing. Maybe every hour or so. Were you allowed to talk to other guys? You could talk quietly. I mean, as long as you were, uh, you know, just not. Is that not what getting you did crazy? Most of that, I mean, sort of I talked to guys. Um, eventually, over time, uh, the embassy, my family was able to send. New Yorker magazines and uh, some books to the embassy, and there were some books already in the room from some previous foreigners who had been there, so I was able to read. I mean, I ended up also reading high school history textbooks and things like that, but it's better than doing nothing, but we'd have lunch then at uh, around 10.30 in the morning, and lunch and dinner were pretty much the same thing, Uh, always, always a boiled vegetable in salty, greasy water, just like... The worst, the worst possible meal, and I'm sure it met the caloric requirements or something, you know, uh, set by <laughs> some board. But I mean, literally, you could have like boiled cucumbers for lunch in salty, oily water, boiled celery, boiled potatoes. For the last three or four months that I was there, every single day for lunch, we had boiled, salty potatoes for lunch, and then at night you'd have something else, boiled and salty, uh, and manto to go with it. Jesus, that sounds awful.
0: So Michael, you have lunch, you have the boil, boiled salty vegetable, and then what's, what are the afternoons activities? Well, you know what happens after lunch in China. Uh, jail is no different
2: from the rest of China. It's nap time. So we clean up after lunch, and we have an hour to an hour and a half nap. And actually, when we misbehaved, or when we... Um, there was actually these times that they called confession... Uh, times where they wanted everyone to confess to crimes that they hadn't previously confessed to, we, they took our naps away, and that would make everybody very cranky. And after that, it was uh, more of the same until dinner. I mean, you, sitting on the board is what you do all day in, in a Chinese jail. You so sit no there,
0: no exercise time. You
2: have dinner at about 4.30, again, boiled, greasy vegetables, and manto. And after dinner is the only free time. You have about two hours between uh from about five to seven, four forty five to six forty five or so before the national news comes on at seven and they let you uh shower then, exercise. You can just hang out. You could take a nap if you wanted to. So that is the that that two hours is the free time. But you have to everyone has to be sitting on the board and we actually have to like rotate towards the door and sit cross legged all on the board uh, to watch the national news and then various terrible chinese television programming until about 10 o'clock that's what we do all evening is sit there and watch tv and it's controlled centrally it's not like we get to choose what's on so it's the news followed by you know chinese variety shows followed by you know uh a world war ii drama uh and i don't know a circus program something like that typical you know f- flipping through the channels chinese programming
0: and then uh, that's so. The, and you're forced to watch that. You can't. You not, can't not watch.
2: The, you can't like talk during the TV or like read a book during the TV. Like it's like you watch. TV watching time. It's that's one of the worst.
0: Until uh, ten, that's pretty late. And then lights out or what?
2: Yeah. Then uh, you. They tell you to you know get ready for bed. Everyone sets up their bed, brushes teeth, stuff like that. And uh, the lights go out though. I mean, that first night they did. Yeah. Right? They could, yeah. What well, you would call lights out, but they don't turn the lights out. Unfortunately, in China, they. Uh, I mean, there must be. 30-foot ceilings in, in in these cells we were at, and they kind of have stadium lighting hanging down from the top, or something you would see in a, a supermarket. And they never, ever shut it off, like, it ever, ever, ever. Uh, the only time we were in the dark once was there was some problem, some problem with the fans in our room they needed to fix, so they told us to go into our little, uh, there was a little space outside the room where we stored extra goods uh, that was not outside, but it was kind of like a little, porch that was surrounded by high cement walls uh, that kind of went out to a night. That was the only time I was in the dark during the entire time that I was locked. Were you locked. given any indication of the progress of your case of the prosecution against you
1: at all? Uh, during, no, I mean you're you totally... There, you, you went in in March in 2009 and then you didn't get
2: out until October, is that right? That's right. And um, I mean they they could have held me for seven months and seven days and they held me for seven months and three days. So I went through pretty much the entire system of Uh, You know, investigation and and, uh, deciding whether or not to prosecute you in China. I mean, basically, your first month, they can hold you just to decide whether or not your case has merit to continue holding you. And usually it does. After that, they start three two-month cycles, which are each investigation cycles. The police investigate you for two months. At the end of the two months, they pass up all their evidence in their case to the procurator, the prosecutor. And prosecutor decides whether or not to take your case to the judge. So, and then if the prosecutor decides your case isn't strong enough yet, the case against you isn't strong enough, they go through another two-month cycle. And you can go through three of those two-month cycles. So that's how you get to seven months. So, and that's what happened to you then? You... I went through all three of those two-month cycles. And, and at the end of time each time, time they, they said that the case wasn't strong enough and they sent it back. And if you get it sent back at the third time, that means you're, you're free. Third time's a charm. Wow! Uh, and that, so and, and that happened, and that's what happened. So uh, you must have got yourself very lucky then. I, I, I very lucky.
1: So
2: it was more than luck. I mean, I, I would say that getting out of Chinese jail has. I'm not a religious person, but definitely that moment, like that happening to me, getting out of that situation, has made me much more spiritual person, and definitely believing in. Just more being there in the universe you know some miracle saved me uh from Chinese prison I was I mean the the there were several miracles actually the, the first miracle was that the 2100 grams which I had been promised when I was in xinjiang uh for the two kilos that I bought to bring back to Beijing came up it, it, it came up short it was actually. Uh, after I'd been in there for two months, after I was in jail for two months, they had to show me this evidence from the lab that had tested, uh, you know, the cannabis, the hash that I had been caught with and what was sold to me as 2,100 grams actually ended up being 1,970 grams. And then in my house, all of the little bits and pieces that they found added up to 22.56 grams. So my total amount of hash was 1,992.56 grams. And two thousand was the limit. So, as you can imagine, when I saw that number at the bottom of the page, I was like, "Is this for real?" And the the, the uh, investigating officer was kind of like, "Oh yeah, you must be real happy, huh? Real you? happy
0: that the the, the 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 your 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 buddies, the dealers, screwed you, huh? Yeah. <laughs> or who knows? Yeah, exactly. Or, or I mean, or miscalculated I or use whatever. And
2: I use that example all the time in my life now. I mean, just tell people when they give me some example of some bad thing that happened to them. Like I tell them, well, I once got shorted more than hundred grams, like on a big hash deal and it saved my life. So don't be too worried. Uh, I, and I, there was other things that also, that was not the only thing that saved my life because I was, you know, just seven and a half grams away from hitting the 2000 mark and automatically getting into that category as a, as a drug dealer. And I, I had uh, just the night before somebody had come over to my apartment in Beijing and, purchased 40 grams for me so if i'd had that 40 grams on me i also would have been screwed and also that 40 grams was part of 50 grams the only 50 grams i had on me so when i was arrested the next morning i only had one bag with 10 grams in it instead of five bags with each with 10 grams in it which would be you know evidence of uh, okay
1: you've lost me with the math but sorry yeah that's but, okay um, how did you get through a day-to-day I and mean, what were you, what, how did you make yourself just sort of endure this? And I guess to follow up on that. What did this make you feel about, about your whole experience in China? Did you make you, I mean, did you internalize it and feel like, well, I, I screwed up. This is my fault. Or were you, oh you yeah.
2: Like- I, I mean, I'm still a China lover. I, I, I mean, I mean, there's this guy on Facebook that I'm friends with, Frank Wang Guan We used to work at CCTV and he works for CCTV America now. He's always posting, uh, you know Chinese arguments for why all the various islands and you know, all the various seas belong to them and things like that. And half the time, I find myself agreeing with him. So I don't hate China at all. I mean, this was me really messing up. Uh, now that said, being in jail in China was terrible. But I could have guessed that. Uh, you know, from my previous experiences <laughs> in China. I mean, being on a bus in China is pretty
0: terrible. Some too. hotels, so, are yeah, exactly, <laughs> <all> pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah, not to make light. So you've just you've described a day so you go to bed the lights are still on so what happens at night So
2: basically from 10 to 6:30 is sleeping time but the thing that I mean I didn't realize and was one of the rudest awakenings literally uh of being in Chinese jail is that you're expected to perform guard duty. Two people at a time have to be awake at any moment. So between the hours of 10 PM and 6 30 in the morning, there's always two people standing in the room watching everybody else sleep. And on my second the first night they let me sleep, thank God. Cause I was, you know, totally messed up. But the second night, they wake me up at midnight and they say, get up. They're like you got to do guard duty. It's time to do guard duty. And I'm like, What? I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And you have to stand there. In the cold, like not falling asleep while everyone in the room is sleeping with these bright lights on, and just stand there for two hours. It's 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 it might not sound that terrible, but it's really really terrible to stand there and watch people sleep for like hours and have somebody watching you on a camera on the wall. Like if you lean against the wall, be like, don't lean against the wall. Like don't fall asleep. What's going on? Get up. And then you then then two o'clock comes and some guy on a microphone says uh, switch shifts and you wake up the next guy and you go to bed. And the next night at two in the morning, they w- the next night at two in the morning they wake you up to stay stay up till four, and then the next night after that they wake you up at four in the morning to stay up till six thirty. Then you get a night off, but you have to stay up all night just watching uh, other people sleep, and it's ve- it's one of the hardest things to get used to, especially at the beginning when you're so messed up and all you want to do is like sleep to kind of get away from your terrible terrible life that you're experiencing wow. and they make you stand there and just watch everybody anyways it's a it's something unique to and these bright lights they just never go off so everybody uses uh eye masks uh they make they cut off the sleeves of t-shirts and make blindfolds and things like that oh, and okay. sometimes they'll thank come god and you have those. take it but so but but you're not allowed to have them so sometimes they'll come and take them away or tell everybody to take off their blindfolds and things like that so
0: it's not pleasant no, no, not at all. So how does that compare with because you later ended up doing some time in the United States for a similar uh, sure. events how, how 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 did the two experiences compare?
2: well, as you mentioned uh like i did I didn't quite learn my lesson after I came back to the United States without a record from China i uh kind of got back into what I was doing all over again, and I ended up getting caught in two thousand twelve with over a hundred pounds of weed in New Jersey, and that—I mean, if the first time was the stupidest thing I ever did, the second time was definitely the second stupidest thing I ever did. Because I—I I mean, people literally say to you when you come back from an experience like being in Chinese jail, like "I guess you'll never go to jail again," like "I bet you never do that again," yeah, and, uh, and then to, then do again, <laughs> to do it again, to do it again is 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 fairly embarrassing. So. Never going back again. Let me just put that out there publicly. Never going back for a third time. (laughs) But uh, yeah, when I came back to the... I I mean, I've been involved with cannabis, uh, I mean, well, since I was in high school, but I worked at high times while I was in uh, college here in the United States. And obviously in China, I was smoking plenty. And when I came back here to the United States, I worked in New York for a year and then decided to come back out to California and get into the cannabis industry. I mean, I wanted to be part of the, the real legal cannabis industry that is happening out here. And I, you know, worked a bunch of various jobs, uh, trimming up up in the Emerald Triangle uh, and doing some driving for people. But I ended up starting a delivery service here in Oakland, delivering cannabis to people's homes. And that's what I did. I won, I won some cannabis cups. So... I forget what we're talking about. I'm sorry. That's what happens when you smoke a lot of cannabis. <laughs> I guess it was how you
0: ended up in the clink in New Jersey.
2: Okay, yeah. Okay. So, after I came back from China and I ended up here in California starting a delivery service, but I wasn't quite well, before I started the delivery service, I didn't have a place to live. I was staying at a friend's house. I kind of didn't have income, you know, the usual reasons that people uh, sell drugs. And uh, I started just doing a little work here and there for uh some friends just driving stuff up and down the state driving some money up and down the state and then that led to bigger things and i started bringing large shipments of cannabis to the east coast and to new jersey to new york and i mean this is the, just in a car no so this was uh, i mean this was bigger this were i mean these was 100 200 pounds and uh we would use shipping containers and you know put fill it with furniture and hide the canvas in there and things like that i mean it was more elaborate operation but um i mean the first time i did it again back in the us i was i was again uh you know thinking like god this is really stupid why am i doing this then i had a big pile of money in my pocket you know a few days later and i felt better and then i did it again and again and got more money and kind of you know forgot The the regular reasons why people, uh, I guess... Get stupid. Get stupid, because you're making a lot of money. Um, And I kept on doing that. And the shipping company that we were using here in Oakland, uh, they got suspicious of me, because they saw my face one too many times. And uh, one of their dispatchers ended up calling the DEA, and they kind of traced it through to the shipment in New Jersey. And when I arrived there to receive the shipment, uh, I was met by a well, DEA officer and the uh, Bergen County Narcotics Task Force. And that was uh that was that was a whole nother experience. Just like cops. I mean, just like what's that movie uh, with Will Smith, Bad Boys. I mean, they came around the corner, twelve cars, you know, heading straight towards me. They stopped twenty feet away, everyone jumped out with the vests on and the doors open with the guns, like police get the fuck on the ground, you know. And yeah, I was caught red handed again. So this time uh, you were indicted, and yeah, I mean, this time I was. I mean, there was no way I was going to get out of it in the U.S. I mean, basically, always from the beginning, it was just looking for the best plea deal. I was never going to go to trial right. in New Jersey with 130 pounds of weed to, for them to lie on the table, you know, in front of in front of the jury right. uh, before they sentenced me. And and th- the way it works in the U.S., uh, I'm sure many people are familiar with it, is that if you go to trial and you lose. You get a really long sentence if you get if you agree to a plea deal you get a much more favorable sentence so i mean i ended up getting even though it sounds bad i ended up getting 10 years but i ended up only having to serve two of them now if i had gone to trial i probably maybe would have gotten 12 or 15 years but i probably would have had to do seven to ten of them so the math is easy to in terms of not wanting to go to trial in the united states
0: and what were the conditions like in, I mean, uh, in the United States, you're also in jail first, right? And then... Right. So, I mean, the, the I mean, the main difference between the United States and
2: China, I would say, first of all, you have a lot of privacy, a decent amount of privacy in the United States. I mean, uh, for the times that you're locked in, you're locked in a cell with one other person. It's quiet. You kind of have space to think to yourself. The lights go out at night. I mean, that's, a, that's definitely a, a big positive. Also, I mean... In China, that food that they served us was definitely like an attempt, part of an attempt to like break your spirit and, and just like make you, you know, feel the gravity of being in this place. Whereas in the United States, I mean, the food is pretty bad, but it's simulations of all the things you're used to. It's really bad hamburgers, really bad, bad meatloaf, really bad pizza. You know, it's kind of like what they serve in school cafeterias, but in maybe two or three levels down from there in terms of quality. But, I mean, you're in. You're buying hot chips, and uh, you've got TVs in there, and people. And you are can watching. do what you want if you.
0: I mean, yeah, all day, day long, know,
2: all day long, for the most part. You know, when it's not a time where you have to eat or, or or be locked in your room. I mean, you can go watch TV, or you can go sit and read something, or you can go lie down on your bed. I mean, basically, you just stay out of their hair, and they and they don't uh, and they, and they don't care what you do. Whereas in in China, they're really just controlling like everything you do all day long. And and I mean, the the thing that I got out of it was. A part of uh, my education on China as a foreigner uh, that was missing from my years of teaching English and doing business and travel writing and working for CCTV was kind of being inside of of like a Chinese institution. I mean, I not not to say that the prisons and the schools are the same because I didn't go to school in China, but I got to feel what it's like to be you know punished as a group and treated as a group and really forced into a group dynamic because. Everything in the room. If if somebody does something wrong, the room is punished. If somebody does something really wrong, they might shackle their hands to their feet. And uh, right, you know, so for, there's if, something
1: very distinctly Chinese about this style of rehabilitation, right? Or yeah, or, or and punishment. and also, I
2: mean, but really about the incarceration is that. In the U.S., they're gonna like punish you and send you to solitary. You know, if you do something bad. In China, they're gonna punish everybody in your room, and so everybody in the room tries to make sure that like the one crazy guy doesn't do something crazy. Right, because yeah. if they cha- if they chain if they shackle his hands to his feet and he can't wipe his butt, like who's gonna have to do it for him? We're all gonna have to do it. Exactly. Nobody wants to do that, so behave.
0: Wow! Yeah, that that's quite a, an illustration of uh, the coercive techniques of peer pressure. And they're hardcore.
2: I mean, China is more hardcore. I mean, I mean, I mean. let They had this program on on TV in jail every week that was like produced to kind of show you what other prisoners were doing wrong and like you know what you shouldn't do and it was produced uh, you know it was produced by some guy some old guy who was a prisoner was the host and one week they went to this cell and they talked to a guy and this was in the, the worst part of uh, part of the jail so they went to the cell and they said to the guy like what are you here for and he said i was here for killing somebody during a robbery right and they said what was your sentence and he said i have suspended death penalty which means that you have death penalty but they suspend it to be a life sentence uh as long as you don't mess up uh basically while you're incarcerated and they say so what did you do and he's like oh i got into a fight in the room and he says, so what's gonna happen now he's like oh now i'm gonna get the death penalty or like i mean i don't know if they executed this guy but that's the kind of like programs they're showing you there so it's not like i mean it is you do have fun and you dance around with the guys and you know you sing songs and you try to like take your mind off of the terrible conditions you're in but i mean they execute people at beijing number one detention center they don't execute people at you know Bergen County jail or or northern uh state prison in New Jersey so it just has a different feel wow well Michael it's been uh really
1: terrific hearing your stories and I've I hope our listeners have found this as intriguing and enlightening and frightening as, uh, as I have
2: well don't go to jail in
1: China that's all I, I can say I have no <laughs> intention we it. be, be very very good uh but let's stick around and make a recommendation with us would you sure Sounds okay good. great 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 uh, and before we get to recommendations, we want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at at SupChina News and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Sub China News? Now on to recommendations. Jeremy kicks off.
0: I'd like to recommend the blog Language Log, which is written by uh, a bunch of different people who are linguists and or ha- have a, an intense interest in language. There was a post recently, uh, at least recent as of our recording, uh, about Xi Jinping's gaffe during the G20, where he misquoted a, a Chinese saying. Uh, well, he, he, read he, the r- he misread the character for Nong or you know, agriculture as, as Yifu, as clothes, because the, the two characters look very similar, to the delight of all the wags on the Chinese internet who mocked him endlessly for being uncultured. Um, There was a particular post that I very much enjoyed uh, about this, but the the blog itself is really wonderful, and there's always quite a lot of China stuff on it. Yes, there Um, is. So, language log. Good good recommendation. Michael, what do you have for us?
2: All right, uh, I would like to recommend the movie Keanu, which got the worst uh, ratings ever by the critics last year. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Comedy duo, Key and Peele. Yeah, um, I know who they are. Their movie was severely panned last year. I ended up not going to see it in the theater, even though I really wanted to because it got like a 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. Anyways, last week I ended up watching the movie and it was pure comedic genius all the way through. People said they held the gag too long. I thought they pushed the gag to genius level. So I... Tell everybody, please rent Keanu. Support the comedians, Keen Peel. What they yeah, do is I, I like
1: Key and Peel. I mean, I I, I love them. I love their their stuff. I mean, I thought they were genius. I no, thought they, they are were, genius. I, I they are they were, genius for sure. I'm, I'm surprised that that I didn't know that movie
2: was so badly panned. Oh yeah, it was. Oh, wow. I mean, yeah. maybe not go see it because yeah. <laughs> I was like, no. Can I throw another recommendation in there. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, sure. Go for it. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go I'm gonna go there and recommend CCTV America. I I really think that a lot of uh, your listeners out there who may not be as familiar, may not have lived in China as long as we have, uh, they could get a lot from watching CTV America. There's a lot of crap on there. There's propaganda. But you get the Chinese view, and you get it explained uh, in a way that, I don't know, it makes sense. At least you can know what, what people in China are actually thinking, or what the government position is in China. Clearly. Nothing wrong with
1: that. Nothing wrong with knowing that. In fact, I encourage that people should should understand that better. Great. My recommendation is actually sort of a pre-reading for an upcoming podcast that we're going to be doing with the journalist and writer Bill Lasher. Uh, Bill has written a, a terrific book called Eve of a Hundred Midnights. It's about a distant relative of his, a guy by the name of Melville Jacoby or Mel Jacoby and his newlywed wife, uh, who have marvelous and, and ultimately quite tragic adventures in China during the Second World War, in the Philippines, and then eventually in Australia. But... uh he first comes to China in 1937, comes back to China soon afterward, and is 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 involved with a huge cast of, of characters, everyone from John Kai-shek himself to Sung Mei Ling to uh, General MacArthur. It's just, it's an amazing, and T.H. White, the the uh, war correspondent, they, these are, they, they were war correspondents during uh, the Pacific War, made a harrowing escape uh from Manila in the Philippines after Pearl Harbor, and end up on uh, on you know the, the infamous uh, Bataan Peninsula during uh, MacArthur's efforts to hold out there. Fascinating book, and we really look forward to talking to Bill Lasher. So if you get a chance to read it ahead, you'll be uh, all that much better prepared when we do the podcast. Anyway, thanks again, Michael. That was really, really interesting. My
0: pleasure. Thanks, Michael.
1: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla La Chang, Amdale Tumalillo, and Soraya Darabi from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.